Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. All right, everyone. Welcome to episode 111 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin and I'm your host. And today's guest is Dylan Bynan, and he is the CEO and founder of Mindbloom that works with ketamine treatments to help people who are struggling with anxiety and depression. A great interview, and we really get into some of the neurological components of using psychedelics to heal the mind. Super cool. So the way I met Dylan was through my brother, who is a nurse practitioner and works at Mindbloom to help patients go through this process. And so I was hearing some of the stories about patients using these ketamine treatments to overcome depression and anxiety and it was pretty amazing so i was able to uh, reach out to dylan and uh, get him to come on the podcast and talk about it because i think that some of these cutting edge treatments can really help people and it can be another as i say in the episode tool in the toolbox to be able to make the changes and shifts that you need to be able to feel better and live the life you want. So we go into an in-depth conversation about it and I can just tell Dylan is so passionate about bringing care to people out there. So it was a great interview, really enjoyed it. I hope you like it as well. Also, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend or leave a review. That really does help get this valuable information out to more people who may not otherwise see it or hear it so that they can get the help that they need or they can maybe find the way in which they can heal by listening to one of the guests on the Addicted Mind and say, hey, you know what? I want to try that. I want to get better. I want to feel better. And so if you could do that, that'd be awesome. Really appreciate it. Also, think about joining our Facebook group. Uh, just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there as well. All right, let's go ahead and uh, start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. Today, we have a 
great guest who is going to talk about ketamine and ketamine treatments to deal with anxiety and depression and addiction. And uh, so I'm really excited about this interview. Uh, his name is Dylan Bynan. Dylan, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. First and foremost, thanks for having me on, Dwayne. I'm super pumped to chat with you today. Awesome. So let's just jump in. Let's let's hear a little bit about your story, and then we'll get into your company that you're doing, which is Mindbloom, and we'll talk about how that developed. But first, let's just hear a little bit about you and your story and how this all came to be. Great. I'm the founder and CEO of Mindbloom. We are a next generation mental health and well-being company that's helping people with addiction, depression today achieve breakthrough results with guided ketamine therapy, largely from home. The way I got into this is a long story and it's deeply personal to me. And it really started by growing up in a family that was just stricken top to bottom with pretty extreme issues with mental health care and addiction. Um, so a lot of members of my family had issues with depression and opioid addiction and other addictions. Uh, but most acutely, my mother is severely mentally ill, uh, grappled with a variety of addictions, including um, you know, opioid and painkiller addictions. Uh, and ultimately, we lost her to homelessness, despite our, our best efforts as a, as a working class family to grapple with this really wicked problem. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's so painful. It sounds like you have firsthand experience with all of this. So how how did that impact you on a personal level? I think, interestingly enough, part of my story here at Mindbloom is growing up, my reaction to living in like a pretty turbulent, sometimes violent home was to build up a shell. And so I felt like I should just distance myself from it. I threw myself into schoolwork and really achieved in school and sports and, and got a, a full scholarship to, um, to the University of Pennsylvania. I was valedictorian in my high school. And I, I thought I really had it all figured out. And in June of 2009, so 11 years ago at this point, I had a friend who approached me who said he thought I really needed to work on myself, need to work on my, my, <laughs> my, the way I related to others, right. um, and highly recommended that I try MDMA, which maybe, as you know, is, is now in um, the second half of phase three clinical trials for PTSD. With some, real, with some really awesome results, too. A stunning results. I mean, MDMA therapy has been designated a breakthrough therapy by the FDA because the results have been so fantastic and it will be such a game changer when it is approved in the next couple of years. It's going to be, you know, world changing. Absolutely. So kind of what I hear in your story, and I think this happens for a lot of people to, to put this into context is, you know, when we have these adverse childhood events, and we grow up in these kind of turbulent childhoods, we do have to create all these defenses to protect ourselves. And those can come out in so many ways. I mean, they can come out as workaholism, alcoholism, shutting down, numbness, PTSD, all of that. And it sounds like you had Someone was saying to you, hey, there's some issues here. Yeah, I mean, I was in complete denial. I was, like I said, I was, I mean, I was doctoring in my high school. I had friends. I had a girlfriend I loved at the time, like a high school sweetheart. And I thought that everything was fine. And I had like overcome, you know, growing up in maybe a rough household. I also have a, you know, a father who's my hero who, you know, showered me with love. So I thought I, one parent was fine. And even though we weren't able to help my mother, you know, that that was surmountable. Right. After 
doing MDMA, which I was incredibly reticent to do because growing up with an addict in my home, I was terrified of you know any you know substance, right? Right. Know, despite yeah. just despite being in college and you know drinking a few nights a week quite quite heavily. And when I did MDMA, it fundamentally transformed how I related to others in the world. Uh, and I quickly learned about myself that I had this trauma and that the way that it was being expressed is that I had built a shell and essentially I was a pessimist. Right. And I think so many people can relate to that because we can kind of, we learn to survive right? And we learn to protect ourselves, but that protection, sometimes we're so used to it, we don't even know it's there, but it has all these other consequences. Like you said, maybe pessimism or isolation or not being able to connect with others. Yeah. I mean, I think pessimism is really insidious too. Like pessimism for me meant that I didn't believe in people. I didn't believe in the world. My filter when I met anybody was that I did not like them. I did not, <laughs> I did not trust in people and I did not relate to other people. And once I started connecting with others and felt what it was like to you know, open myself up and to have a positive outlook on others in the world, I mean, my life totally changed. Wow. And the, the medicine itself was a catalyst. Like, you know, that was just like the beginning. It just gave me a glimpse of it and maybe gave me like the brain chemistry and the emotional state to begin developing. But I don't... No, I mean, I know without a doubt that I would not be who I am or where I am today, having built a few, you know, uh, social positive, world positive companies and having the friends and the marriage that I have, uh, if I hadn't maybe uh, plugged those jumper cables onto myself and then leveraged these medicines over the past 11 years to, you know, increase my neuroplasticity and uh, open myself up emotionally and as a pillar of my own mental health care development. Right. Definitely. So let's let's kind of jump in and talk about a little bit what's going on in the brain when, you know, when we take ketamine or MDMA or what you're saying and how that how that actually helps you, like why that is. It's not just about necessarily, quote, you know, I think a lot of people think getting high, there's something else going on there. And I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about ketamine and what you guys are doing at MindBloom and how that works, because I think those kind of tie together. Yeah, absolutely. So I've had really transformational experiences with a lot of different medicines over the last decade. And I became a ketamine therapy patient a little over two years ago now. When I used ketamine therapeutically, I found that it was just as transformational as a lot of other medicines that I've used and was frankly pretty stunned to learn that even though I had been donating to psychedelic research for years uh, and following along and been an ardent supporter Right. It being the change I most wanted to see in the world because of the impact it had on my life. You know, the ketamine was this medicine that over the last 20 years has had a lot of clinical research and had been growing in terms of its therapeutic use, but a lot of people still didn't know about it and weren't accessing it. Okay. So when you do this, because you talked about kind of you had the shell built around you. And when you started to do some of these psychedelics, it sounds like that shell went away or changed or shifted. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So MDMA specifically is, in addition to being a psychedelic, is widely regarded as an empathogenic medicine because it acts on your serotonin system and causes serotonin to be shuttled across the synapse in large quantities. And so for a lot of people, subjectively, that can have a very heart-opening effect. And for people with 
PTSD, it allows them to engage with their trauma in a therapeutic setting in a way that they previously weren't able to. On the other side of the spectrum, you may have medicines like psilocybin or LSD uh, that are also serotonergenic, but that are agonizing your serotonin receptors, like potentiating them and creating this hallucinogenic effect, as well as upregulating what's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like HGH or fertilizer for the brain and creates a state of synaptogenesis and neuroplasticity where people are able to more readily create new, healthier neural pathways and connections. So, okay, that, that's like so much right there, right? So let's, can we break it down a little bit more? So when you take some of these psychedelics, they work in the brain to open up neuroplasticity. So what, is, what does that mean in kind of a practical sense? Like if someone comes in with anxiety and they do this, what's happening to them? So when the brain enters a state of neuroplasticity, it is more readily able to create new connections. Some analogies that you hear often are, it's like over time as you go through life and you do certain things, you develop patterns or neural pathways in your brain. And so these are almost like ruts or grooves. You can think of it like um, ski tracks in the snow that get worn deeper and deeper over time. When you enter a state of neuroplasticity, it's almost like putting a fresh coat of snow over those tracks such that you can create new pathways. Or another way to think about it is you like are shaking the snow globe up. Right. And so that allows people to kind of lay down new ways of thinking. So going back to what you were saying through your childhood experiences, you had laid down kind of some of those pathways of pessimism that added negativity to your life. And when you do this treatment like a ketamine, it opens up that neuroplasticity so that those thought patterns have the possibility of shifting in a more positive direction. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and it's not just our thought patterns. Like our body and our minds are all interconnected. It's this highly dependent, complex system of thoughts and emotions and physical ways of being. So it can be thought patterns, it's emotional patterns, it's behavioral patterns. So for people who maybe don't have a ruminative disorder or ruminative habits like depression or anxiety or OCD, or PTSD, or substance use disorder. It can maybe feel like a lot of creativity and mood elevation and psychological insight. They can still be very beneficial. For uh, people who are experiencing some sort of ruminative thought disorder, and that can even be, you know, it can be a clinical addiction, or, you know, it can be an addiction to something like, you know, gambling, porn, television, or, you know, any sort of dependency on a habit that somebody doesn't wish that they had, that they're stuck in. What it does for people when you know, BDNF is upregulated and this creative neuroplasticity is created, all of a sudden pushes people out of these unhealthy neural pathways and connections, elevates their mood, you know, allows them to have some psychological insights into maybe why they're like that way or what way they wish they could be, uh, and then creates a period with ketamine. It's, it's been shown to be about three to 14 days based on neuroimaging studies of neuroplasticity where people are more readily able to create these healthier neural pathways and connections, which translate into healthier thought patterns, healthier emotional patterns, and like healthier actual behavioral patterns you know, in their everyday life. Right. So the question that's coming up for me is, 
how do you do this therapeutically so that you have the best chance of positive change? And I guess what I'm saying is like somebody could do this recreationally, I guess, and then therapeutically. And I'm wondering what the difference is and and how therapeutically you set the stage to have the best chance of creating that positive change. I think there are a few different directions to go in here. One is what the efficacy of the medicine is when it's just done in a safe environment. So uh, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like uh, Lexapro and Prozac, studies show that they have a response rate for people with depression of about 40 to 45%. Uh, Ketamine therapy to take one medicine when just given in a medical context, so no therapeutic intervention, just given the medicine, maybe it's by like an intravenous injection, told that any psychedelic effects or like a side effect to be ignored, has a response rate for symptoms of depression of 65 to 70%. Wow. It's like an incredible increase. Wow. That's amazing. What we're seeing at MindBloom is when providing people with a therapeutic experience, which I'll dig into next, the response rate can jump from anywhere from 85 to 95%. Wow, that's amazing. One thing I think is really interesting about psychedelic therapy, and there's a lot of research going on, not just for ketamine therapy, but for psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, and a range of other compounds, is that it's almost a different type of modality that's often practiced to help people get more out of it. So you know, whereas you know, traditional psycholytic talk therapy is you know talking to somebody, and that's a large part of the therapy as well as you know what they do after the therapy. A lot of psychedelic therapy is helping to set people up beforehand and afterwards to get the most out of the experience, and then leverage that neuroplastic state to actually make behavioral changes. Right. So you kind of set the stage. So when the brain is best state to make these bigger shifts. I would even say it sounds like not just the brain, but the whole nervous system. It's it's more able to shift. You've set the stage for those thought patterns to, in a way, be laid down in a positive way. And so the person has that change, that longer change, I guess. Yep, that's exactly right. And it's that there, there are like three different sort of phases here. There's preparation or preparing for each therapeutic experience. There's the experience itself and you know, maximizing the therapeutic potential of it. And then there's the integration. So taking the insights, the elevated mood and the neuroplastic state to actually create those behavioral changes so that they stick. Right. And then, and then, and then they can carry them forward into their life. So if, if someone came into MindBloom or, or was doing this, what this would look like. So they do the first stage, they do some therapy, it sounds like. And then, then what happens after that? Yeah. So MindBloom, we have three big goals. We want to dramatically increase access to treatment for people, which we think makes, means making treatment more affordable. So we've dropped the price about 75% from the average ketamine therapy practitioner. Um, make it more available to people. So we use a, a telemedicine-based model to make this largely available to people in a lot more areas, uh, as well as make it more approachable to people. Ketamine can be really new and different and scary to some people. Um, so we provide a lot of education, content, and resources um, to help you know, people throughout the entire experience. The second is we aim to deliver exceptional clinical outcomes for people, which we discussed a little bit earlier. And third is deliver an exceptional client experience end to end. 
So getting back to your question of what is an experience in Mindbloom like? So the way it works is people have a consult with a psychiatric clinician online. If approved for treatment, and right now they treat for depression and anxiety, they receive you know the medicine from pharmacy in the mail along with a we call it a bloom box, which is a, a package that includes a lot of different things to help them get the most out of the therapeutic experience. We have an online platform similar like Headspace or Calm for psychedelic therapy with content and programs, and we pair them with a guide who's essentially a, a trained peer coach who is going to help take them through the entire experience and and support the patients and the clinician throughout the experience. So you're setting this up for them, you're walking them through it, you're helping them set this positive experience. Yeah, that's exactly right. So during preparation, what the clinician and guide will do is help a client set a really clear intention for what they're looking to explore and come up from their, you know, their subconscious and their inner mind during the experience. During the session itself, which is you know a, a remote guided session, they are given content to help sort of educate them on how to get the most out of psychedelic therapy and do it because there's definitely a, a bit of a learning curve, uh, and that involves um, how to create a calm, positive, expansive mindset, uh, how to craft a safe, comfortable setting for them at home, which is a, a huge input into what their mindset will be like during the experience and what people will get out of it teaching people what to do once the medicine effect comes on. A lot of people <laughs> have a lot of questions like, what do I do? <laughs> do I meditate? Do I work on my intention? Do I just do nothing? And then after the experience, help people journal on the experience to solidify the experience, as well as help give them the tools to actually make behavioral changes in the weeks ahead. So when you say, when you talk about afterwards, like they, they do this journaling, is this where they write down what they experienced and maybe the changes that they have so they can get back to that, solidify it. I guess that's what I'm getting to. Like, how does this change stick? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a few reasons journaling is really powerful with psychedelic therapy. I'm not a journaler. (laughs) Long before I learned about how there's significant research and studies and practices and protocols around psychedelic therapy and how journaling was a part of that. I was journaling while you know using psychedelics for my mental health. So there's it's uh, there's there's like there's there's some truth behind it, the fact that it just works. One of the reasons that journaling is really effective is sometimes psychedelic experiences, including with ketamine, which acts on your glutamate system, which regulates your memory, can feel a little dreamlike or can be like hard to remember. By journaling during the experience or immediately after, it helps solidify the memories similar to like a dream journal, where if you journal right after you wake up, your dream will sort of coalesce like a ball of yarn versus sort of uh, slip through your fingers like sand. In addition, oftentimes people could have their breakthrough or key insights in addition to the emotional changes and and mood lift, not just during the therapeutic experience, but sometimes immediately after while journaling or sometimes in the days after as they're working on and processing, you know, what came up for them and their new state. So journaling helps sort of expand the content that they have to work with and to keep like the work going, even if the height of the therapeutic experience or the, the physical or subjective effects aren't, you know, are, are diminished. Right, right. So this is what I'm at. I haven't done ketamine. So I haven't done psychedelics before. So I, I don't know what the experience is like. But what it sounds like to me, what's happening 
and you can tell me if I'm off base or it doesn't it, it doesn't right is that you when you take the ketamine it kind of opens up your mind to be more fluid or more open and you can look at some of these experiences in your life through this different kind of lens and then in a way cement those new memories or new feelings or experiences in a way that is is more positive so maybe after that window of neuroplasticity you now lay down these new ways of experiencing your own i want to say thoughts feelings all of that together is that would that be kind of right would that be correct to to say it that way yeah i think that's largely right one thing that comes up for people often is you go in with an intention something that you're looking for an answer for, you're looking to work on or explore. And oftentimes, the intention is not the thing that comes up. That usually it's not. Right. Um, right. Maybe like a refrain is often like, you get the experience you need, not the experience that you want. Right. It's interesting because I did another interview about those MDMA trials with PTSD. And one of the things that really stuck out to me is they, you know, a lot of these veterans who had a lot of war trauma came in to do to work on that PTSD. But when they actually were doing the sessions with the MDMA, it usually always went back to early childhood trauma, that that's what came came up to them. And that, and, and I, which makes sense to me, because that's sometimes rooted more in our psyche from our early childhood development. But uh, it sounds like that's what you're saying. It's like you have this intention, but <laughs> your body's like, no, this is really what you need to work on. Yeah. So our science director, Dr. Casey Palios, is a principal investigator on the MDMA clinical trials here in the city. And uh, everybody on MindBloom starts with a program that's like an introduction to psychedelic therapy with Dr. Palios. And what he talks about, which is a concept from Stan Groff, who's who's largely considered like the godfather of psychedelic therapy, is the concept of the inner healing intelligence, which is like our bodies are in a natural state of healthy and it's when we you know we eat poorly or injure ourselves oftentimes that we get sick or injured or hurt similarly our mind and our brain chemistry and our brain health the default state is a state of healthy but we live in this hyper modern world that our brains aren't really equipped to deal with and we're bombarded by you know super normal stimuli which is a lot of addiction is around as well. Right, um, right. And so when you give somebody a psychedelic medicine that uh, creates the state of neuroplasticity and sort of suppresses some of the areas like the prefrontal cortex that are involved in fault thought and the default mode network of stuff that's just like running in the background all the time, it gives the brain a chance to reboot and return to the state of healthy. <laughs> right. And that's why, like for me, I often will go into my therapeutic experiences, you know, wanting to work on becoming a better leader, wanting to work on, you know, key insights into ways that I'm anxious or, you know, dealing with specific problems in my life. And the recurring motif for me is that that intention goes out the window and I'm reminded about how important my relationships are. Right. And I'm reminded like, oh, I should like, I have like a really close relationship with my father who I said was my hero. Like I should call my father more. I should like spend more time with my team, not just like working with them and being like a hard charging, formidable, you know, intense CEO, but like relating to them as a person and, and creating a company of wholeness and 
you know, I have like tension with people that I don't even think I have tension with that I should resolve. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's like the body, the body knows, you know, it's like the body knows and I believe it's in there. Sometimes it's not in our conscious awareness of where we need to go, but in a way the body knows. And it sounds like in doing in some of these medicines, they kind of help that process in a natural way kind of leveraging our own neurochemistry to get us to a better place of healing. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that, I think that's awesome. I think um, when we can look at all these things and find all these tools to, to mitigate our, our suffering, I just think that's great. Uh, I mean, we think about like, when we talk relentlessly about this, like our mission at Mindbloom is to transform lives today, to transform the world tomorrow. And that if we succeed in really increasing access to these medicines and creating exceptional experiences for people that get them real outcomes, then we will accelerate the healthcare system's adoption of these next generation psychedelic therapies, make a dent in global human suffering, and potentially even expand humanity's collective wisdom, compassion, and, and consciousness. So absolutely. And we can help people however we do it with this way or you know, I think our, our mission is the same, you know, mitigating that suffering so that we can be our best selves and uh, bring the best out of, of humanity and um, understanding that we, these are tools that we can use in that process. And I think you nailed it with the word tool. We encounter a lot and just, I think, see a lot of people who expect like the medicine to do 100% of the work. And I think maybe a better way to think about it is it's a tool or a catalyst for change, but it's only the jumper cables. Like it only gets you started. And what you do with the improved emotional state, the psychological insight, the period of neuroplasticity afterwards to actually create like behavioral changes in your life that will then solidify into like emotional and cognitive changes is the real opportunity. And that's where the work is. And I mean, I think we all want, you know, when we're in psychological pain and we're hurting, we're depressed, we're anxious we want out so fast, you know, we want to, we, we want to get out and we just want it to end. But usually there's some work that we have to do and we don't want to miss that opportunity either. We don't want to just mask it. I mean, that's, I think that's what addiction does, right? It just masks over it and just kind of plows over the pain in the moment, but it never leads to positive change, you know, or handling the situation. And, and it sounds like when you are doing ketamine, it does give you that relief, but it also sets the stage for you to make the changes that in a way your emotions are telling you to do, right? That add to more positivity in your life, right? Some of the, sometimes our negative emotions are telling us things we need to listen to, but we don't know how, or we don't have the space to be able to, to listen to them because maybe they're so painful. But I think, yeah, it, it, it motivates us to be our best selves too. Yeah. I mean, I've, in addition to my family, I've, I grew up in Southern California and it's probably like every, large places in the country. There's a big problem with opioid addiction. I've seen multiple friends go through really serious opioid addictions, lost uh, a, a close friend from my adolescent years to opioid addiction. And one thing I've seen from people in recovery is that there's this, you know, this journey or this arc that is different for different people, but there are like clear stages of recovery. One of the things that we're seeing in mind bloom is there seems to be a similar, a similar different journey for people who come in with a depression, and anxiety. And I think it's exactly what you said, which is people coming in 
uh, just want out of the pain. You want the the, the painkiller, the pain relief. Like I'm depressed, I'm anxious. I've been this way for ten years. You know, SSRIs. I've tried ten in the last year, and they don't work for me, and they have terrible side effects. Like, please just relieve me of this pain. Once they take the medicine and it works for them, they respond. Now they're no longer in pain. They have this insight. And now the next step is how do they connect with like meaning and purpose and connection in their life and healthier behavioral habits so that they don't go back into the pain. Definitely. You you have to have that part too. So I I hear you saying that. So how long, how often do you do ketamine and how long does it last is it more of a permanent change or is it something that you have to maintain? And yeah, So MindBloom's protocol is four ketamine therapy sessions over one, sometimes up to two months, depending on patient schedule. And because there's this three to 14 day neuroplastic window, the protocol is built such that each session compounds. And by the end, even if every session isn't the same in terms of the, the amount of dissociation or like the therapeutic power of each individual session, the insights and the neuroplasticity and the behavioral changes should compound such that by the end of that, somebody is in a significantly, you know, meaningfully better state and has relief from depression and anxiety on like a clinical scale. Awesome. In terms of how long it lasts, I mean, the goal is lasting change. But it really depends. Some people, it lasts a long time for. Some are in a better state, but they want to continue the work with a different program immediately after to get into like a deeper therapeutic state and to continue driving on the insights and learnings and behavioral change that they've been making. I think what we know from the research is that the response rate to ketamine therapy is really high and the safety profile is incredibly high. But what there's still a lot to be learned is what does it look like long term? Right, right. So we have data on SSRIs that indicates that on a long time scale, SSRIs work for about a third of people. And I think there are are a lot of conversations around like when you look at people who don't get into SSRI studies and they don't take SSRIs, about a third of them get better on a long term time scale, anyways. And so there are you know conversations, discussions, and debate around like are SSRIs even effective long term? Right. Yeah, I've heard that as well. Definitely. Yeah. There's not nearly enough data on what is ketamine therapy's effectiveness long term. And you know, I think our intuition is that it really depends on what is the program or what are the behaviors and habits that people are doing in integration and beyond to solidify it. But I think that is a major opportunity for us and others and something that we are really pushing on as a key priority is not just tracking people's short-term clinical outcomes, but getting better at tracking people's long-term clinical outcomes and not just providing short-term support with ketamine therapy, but providing long-term behavioral change um, support to help people actually make the behavioral changes in their life that are contributing to their depression or anxiety whether that's you know, diet, you know, smoking, relationships, um, but how do we actually create those behavioral changes that are inputs into depression, anxiety long-term? Awesome. I love that you guys are uh, collecting the data and, and looking at the data and looking at the research and, and studying it so that we can really have the evidence to be able to show how it works and the efficacy of it. You know, I think that's so important to be able to see that. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, that's we we think of efficacy as like three pillars. There's safety, there's you know adherence. Like, do people get through the whole ketamine therapy program, and are they are they doing it in a, a safe, prescribed way? And then the actual outcomes of response rate in terms of what percentage of people respond, and what's the magnitude of their response on you know established anxiety depression scales. 
Right. Yeah, definitely. Talking about safety, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I'm sure people who are listening will have questions about that. What's the risk factors here? And what if I do this? What's what's going on? And, you know, yeah, what am I risking? Yeah. So there's a little bit of, we might call like a narrative violation around ketamine safety profile. So a lot of people hear ketamine and they think like, sounds pretty dangerous. Right. Um, right. <laughs> which I completely understand. I, I thought the same thing before I became a patient myself and, and you know, dug into the research and you know, started partnering with the trailblazing and pioneering uh, providers who've been doing this for a long time. So ketamine is really fascinating that ketamine was FDA approved 50 years ago in 1970 as an anesthetic and analgesic, right? So to, to put people under as an anesthetic and to relieve pain. It has been widely used since then and is today used in every hospital and ER across the country, you know, especially on children because it's one of the safest anesthetics that we have available. It's one of the only ones that doesn't depress your heart or your breathing rate. It's, it's even on the World Health Organization's list of like the world's most essential medicines. It's used all around the world. About 20 years ago, some you know, really incredible, brilliant psychiatrists and researchers started discovering that at lower doses, so like one-fifth to one-twentieth of the dose that you'd give a child in the emergency rooms and put them under a little for a little bit, it had this incredible antidepressive effects. And so over time, there's been more clinical research on ketamine than any other psychedelic therapy because it's the only psychedelic therapy that has been, you know, a legal FDA approved medicine. It's not FDA approved psychedelic therapy, but Right, right, right. But it's been you know, legal and prescribed for a long time. So there's you know, more studies on ketamine therapy than any other psychedelic therapy. And what we find is that it's, just, it's incredibly safe. That said, here are the key risks. The first one by far and away is accident. So it puts people into a, a somewhat sedated state, you know, depending on the dose and how they react to it. So during the especially one hour or so of peak therapeutic effects, you know, up to maybe another hour afterwards, there's a, an elevated risk of accident. You know, generally people are laying on their couch or in their bed when they take the medicine, or if they're in a clinic, you know, they're under a, um, you know, they're, they're, they're supervised in person. In some supervision, yeah. Yeah, and in MindBloom, we have guides who will help train up a required peer monitor for every session. So you're essentially required to be with somebody with you. You know, they receive some instruction on, you know, essentially just how to monitor for safety. But the biggest thing they're monitoring for is right. <laughs> make sure this person who doesn't want to get up anyways because they're undergoing a therapeutic experience with an eye mask and music and meditations for one hour. And it's, you know, very right, right. pleasant. But make sure that they don't, yeah, you know, try to walk up or down the stairs and you make sure they use the restroom ahead of time and you know, support them if they do need to move. Other than that, the two big risks are, you know, risk of psychosis development, which is extremely rare, but anybody who has active psychosis like schizophrenia or really strong family history of it, although usually that won't be screened out, it's more of like someone who's currently experiencing it. Right, right. Should be monitored closely. And, you know, that's something that, um, you know, our platform and other clinicians monitor throughout a course of treatment as well. And then the third third is um, in like really high dose frequent recreational users, you can see some um, urinary or gastro side effects that can develop. Very, very, very rarely seen in like a clinical setting. And then there are some debate and discussions around whether or not ketamine can make people prone to, for a, a psychological dependence. 
because again, that's only seen in like really high dose recreational users right. and not in a clinical setting, but it's something that you know, should be monitored. Right, definitely. So those are the things you look for and, and you watch out for. But what it sounds like what you're saying is like this ketamine has been around for a long time. So it's been researched, it's been seen, it's been used. And it, it has a pretty strong backing of, of generally safe. Yeah, and on top of it, like for you know, anxiety and depression or, or other indications like PTSD or OCD or chronic pain or substance use disorder, you know, which are areas that we're, we're expanding conditions as well, it's a sub-anesthetic dose. So it's at a you know, significantly smaller dose than what's already been used safely for over 50 years. Right, Wow. We're coming up on our time, uh, Dylan. I want to thank you for for coming on to the Addicted Mind and just sharing all of this information about it. And um, if people want to know more, how can they get a hold of you? How can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe, maybe as, a, as a mental health care entrepreneur, I don't have any social media uh, for for my for my <laughs> mental smart. health. Yeah. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Highly addictive. Um, but you can find us at uh, mindbloom.co or you can email me directly at dylan, D-Y-L-A-N, at mindbloom.co and enjoy. Awesome. Want to thank you for having me on and just say that I'm a huge ally and advocate and supporter of what you're doing. Addiction has been a big part of my family and I think it's you know, uh, a terrible you know, disease of modernity and affluence and we are light years from stomping it out. But it's you know an incredibly important, critical you know mission that that we're on here. Oh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. And you know, part of the goal of the Addicted Mind is to bring all these different options to people's awareness, so that they can find the help that works for them. You know, and that there are many different ways to get there, and this could be one way for somebody. And I think that's just awesome. So I appreciate what you're doing as well. Once again, thanks so much for giving me your time and coming on. Thank you, Dwayne. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Addicted Mind. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 11. Once again, if you are enjoying The Addicted Mind, please share the podcast with a friend, rate and review us and subscribe in iTunes. And don't forget, join our Facebook group. Also, you can go to the website and sign up for a newsletter. Uh, We'll send out information when new episodes are available and you'll be able to get it there. Everybody, have a wonderful day. I'm Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.